And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games with yours truly, Michael Walker, and my great friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Mark. How are, I'm <laughs> Wait, no, I'm, no I'm, I'm the very well, Mark. Mark. I'm the very well, Mark. And how are you, Walker? I'm always good, as we always say. Speaking about always being good, proverb of the day is stop waiting and just live the life the way you want to live it. Stop dreaming and just make it happen. Then what are we doing here? I know, right? This is a podcast about board games and how we love board games and how we want to bring more people into this fantastic hobby of board games. So we talk about games that we played this week and we talk about a game that we reviewed last year. And then our feature game of the week, which is going to be Gotham City Chronicles. And our topic of the week, which is taste changing over time. Mark. Last year, last year we reviewed a game called Giant Killer Robots. And how many times have you played Giant Killer Robots since then? Zero. How many times have you played it since then? Zero times. We felt it was a near miss. How many times have you wanted to play Giant Killer Robots since then? Uh, I will say this, just for, for perfect context. The number of times I've wanted to play GKR has been zero. The number of times I've wanted to play the alternate reality version of GKR where some of the problems were smoothed out is non-zero. Because... I really do feel it was a near miss. There was, it had a lot going for it, not just the components, which of course were stunning, but I really am still looking for a multiplayer free-for-all whack fest where you get to do cool things and blow people up and or hit them in the face. And so I think in terms of the overall genre, it's held up pretty well. Like it's still one of the many almost but not quite there designs. And it, there's been an expansion released, uh, Salty and Sweet, which cost roughly $23,000. Very much like the base game, which costs $29,000. Very cheap. Oh, yeah, very affordable. Cheap at twice the price. And it looks stunning, but, uh, you know, it, to the best of my understanding, it was just a new faction, two new uh, giant killer robots, and, and nothing, nothing really new to the system. And our problems were turn order, multiplayer issues of kingmaking, and downtime. You know, the standard stuff that always tends to show up in these multiplayer whacking type games. I, I now have a little twinge again of disappointment that it didn't quite come together. And I'm still waiting for that game. Yeah, I have, I have not had any desire to play it at all, I have to say. But like you said, waiting for that one great punch fest to come out, that would be awesome. I agree. So games we played this week, I played a game called Res Arcana, which I was told that came out this year, but to me felt like it came out 20 years ago. <laughs> it's to me, I only played once that being said, but it seemed just like the typical gather resources phase, spend resource phase, win the game. It didn't really have that odd, cool hook that sort of pulled me in that said, this is how we're going to do it differently than all the rest. It was just sort of more of the same. And it was fine. It, it's by Tom Lehman and he of Race for the Galaxy and of Jump Drive. And Jump Drive, and many, many other things besides. Jump Drive didn't do it for me. Jump Drive, I thought, was a purely mechanical exercise with no depth or nuance whatsoever. Have you played Jump Drive? I have not. Right. And so I felt that Jump Drive was basically Race for the Galaxy with all the good bits ripped right out. But Jump Drive had this potentially intriguing structure where it, where it promised that you would have some amount of tableau building and the game would ramp up considerably and the game would break very quickly so that somebody could win. You know, unlike a lot of other Euro games where you laboriously build up an engine and you take forever to crank it. I complained about that in the context of Kalamala, but Kalamala doesn't have any building, engine building at all, whereas Res Arcana and Jump Drive have some. Anyhow, I enjoy Res Arcana. I agree with you that it doesn't do anything terribly novel, but Tom Lehman's flavor of tableau building is very much my jam. I am very much prefer to do a Tom Lehman type of gig where you're going to be playing for max 45 minutes in the case of something like Race of the Galaxy, or max 20 minutes in something like Res Arcana because it's lightning fast. And you're trying to exploit broken combos amongst a sea of nonsense that you're given. You know, you're, hand, you're, give, you're given a random assortment of goods and you're told, build an engine out of this crap. Well, that's what I mean. That, that's one of the, these are some of the issues I have. It's completely random decks that the two players are given. So right off the top, someone might be getting really great combos while the other person is getting, you know, absolutely nothing. So it's just a rough part of the game. That's for sure. So I played Res Arcana now eight times because uh, it's, you know, really, really quick. And uh, a number of other people have found it uh, who, who are more inclined towards Thomas Lehman style tableau building have, have wanted to play it several times. And I haven't really felt, especially for a game of its length, 
and of its difficulty, I haven't really felt the luck of the draw to be too determinative. There's also a drafting variant, but, you know, if you don't like the game in the random version, I don't think you'd necessarily want to devote the necessary effort to uh, an additional mental cognitive load of playing the drafting variant, so I'm not necessarily selling it to you. I found the luck of the draw to be determinative, and I, I will just say one thing uh, about Res Arcana that I haven't seen repeated elsewhere. I actually find the theming pretty darn good for a game of its depth, because the theme of the game as identified in the rulebook literally consists of hey, so there are some alchemists. And that's pretty much it. There's, like, there's just a sentence saying, hey, there are some alchemists. So I was not expecting anything remotely resembling anything thematic, but just the naming of the resources and what the different artifacts do. Like, you don't have red or fire. You have élan. And I thought I wasn't going to have an excuse to have enough French today uh, talking about a game designed by French people. You know, the, the, the duelist generates élan, and you exhaust the duelist and spend death to acquire some gold. And that's just cute. I find that surprisingly motivating in a context of things like this. I don't mean to say that Res Arcana reinvents anything. It's just a very pretty, quick, accessible, satisfying package. So again, when I play games like Terraforming Mars or even Ginkopolis or the longer games with some elements of tableau building, I always, I always have to think, does this warrant being easily five times the length or six times or ten times the length of something like Res Arcana? For you, the answer is often you, you're not interested in those, those shorter ones, but I, I, I rather like being told to find an engine in a sea of nonsense. Uh, so, you know, different strokes for different folks. I got to get to play Warhammer Quest Blackstone Fortress. So I have a number of dungeon crawlers that I expect to be very, very disappointing and derivative. I actually went to Twitter and said, which of these should I play? Uh, a number of people showed up and said, probably none of them. And I respect that impulse, but I decided that I was going to play uh, one of these probably disappointing dungeon crawlers. And I confess, Warhammer Quest Blackstone Fortress disappointed in that I was not disappointed. It was it was kind of cute. It does a number of things rather well. For one thing, its balance between dungeon crawling and the campaign elements is actually really nice. The campaign element is lightning fast. It's just, okay, go to these ships, spend some stuff, buy some gear, you're done. And that part I really, I really like. I'm tired of bookkeeping. There's no bookkeeping. They talk about how every character has a stasis pod. The stasis pod is just a plastic bag with some artwork on it. And so, you know, there's some cute bits like that. It's uh, an evolution of the Warhammer Quest formula that they reinvented for Silver Tower. It's now got hexes and it's in the 40k universe. I found a copy on eBay without miniatures for $25. And I have to say, it's probably the best $25 of gaming I've spent in a very, very, very long time. I proxied in some Infinity miniatures. So instead of uh, Adventures in the Grimdark, it was instead a Panoceanian insertion team. Uh, that was actually murdering uh, leftover cultists from Cthulhu Wars. Uh, so I, I, I still... Oh, I think that's the Games Workshop police at the door, Mark. Well, no, actually, I haven't said Space Marine, so... Oh, no! <laughs> okay, well, setting all that aside, <laughs> I, I did have cultists at least, right? Yeah, there are lots of cultists in 40K, right? It's true, oh, yes. Space, Marine, Space Marines killed cultists, They right? do, they do. Okay, okay. Despite the fact that they pretty much are cultists, right? It's a, it's a lunchtime thing. Okay, sure, I understand. Anyhow... There's some potentially wonky stuff about cover. I mean, cover, the cover system is kind of cute, but it basically means that attacks from cover make no sense whatsoever, so you just never do that, which helps modulate the scale a little bit. It's fast, it's bloody, it has lots of little skirmishes rather than a protracted uh, campaign setup. For solo play, that leads very, very nicely to I'll play this one skirmish and then walk away and come back later. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was it, it was it was relatively compelling. If I'd paid more than $25, I probably would have had more exacting standards. But it's definitely something that I'm going to try... Uh, uh, to whip out and show other people when they're in the mood to, because I think it's it's going to have relatively uh, uh, it'll it'll scale relatively well. I wouldn't want to bring it up to five. You have the option actually of instead of the monsters being automated, you can have the antagonists being run by somebody, but they still operate on the AI anyway. So you're extremely limited in how you can manipulate them. I don't see that being compelling, but if anyone's tried that and enjoyed it, let me know. But I have to say I was very very pleased with Warhammer Quest Blackstone Fortress. Finally got to try Warpgate. I think it's a, another fantastic, you get so much game out of so little time type game. It would never be a game that I'd choose to play due to the, to the combat system. It seems as though they wanted to make it very random and, and not meaningful, right? Which which is fine. There's nothing, you don't, they didn't want to put too much into the combat system. They wanted to show that, you know, that there, there is, it is there and it's, it's something crazy is going to happen and, and move on. But I, it's so arbitrary that it just sort of took me out of the game. So if that was reworked a little bit, then I think I would like it even more. But other than that, I think there was a ton of game there and I had a ton of fun playing it. And 
I would enjoy playing the game, but like I said, I don't think I'd ever choose to play it. So about the combat system, that's one of the things that's changed from the uh, the early versions. I think I prefer. I, I'm I'm am with you a bit. I can see where you're coming from. The combat system in Warpgate is you basically have your own personal combat deck, and when a fight starts, you pull two cards, and each card is going to have a multiplier which will multiply the strength times the number of ships that you have in the fight, and some text effect. And there's a trade-off between the two. For example, your, your highest combat strength card is going to be 5, but it says that one of your ships dies as a result of the combat. Whereas your weaker cards, some of them say times 0, but they tend to have tremendous uh, secondary effects, like refresh some trade goods which are very powerful and draw a card, stuff like that. In the earlier versions, you never added anything to your combat deck. Everybody had the same eight-card combat deck, and so you knew exactly what was going on, and so you could look at your 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 options and say, okay, well, the X will beat Y, and Y will beat Z, but Z will beat X, and I have to be considerate of what text effects might really hose me. And it was much more deliberate, and I preferred it. The combinatorics were transparent, and so you really got a sense, even after half a game, of what card w- was better in what circumstances, so you could really play some ga- gambles and, and do some interesting things there. In the newer version, you get more variety because you can add cards to your combat deck. And eventually, near the end of the game, especially if you've pr- pursued certain kind of strategies, in Warpgate, you might find that your combat deck bears very little re- uh, relationship to any other person's combat deck. And what that means is you lose that kind of sense of trade-off. You have to trade off the strength of your card versus the text effect of your card, but it's not really worth the mental effort of trying to imagine what the other player is going to play, especially since a lot of those cards you probably haven't seen yet because they're added in secret. So I hear where you're coming from there, uh, but I really do appreciate the fact that over the course of the development cycle, Warpgate has really introduced a lot of that variety that people want out of a 4X-type game. You know, now I have a Rhino Man who fights for me, and now I have this technology that does this thing, and, and so on and so forth. I agree with you entirely about the other points. It packs a lot of game into a very tight package, both in terms of rules load and in terms of playing time, and Warpgate is is a blast to play. I would probably suggest it more often than you would, which is to say, um, you know, ever. I do miss a little bit of that calculated nature of the earlier combat system. But I'm glad you enjoyed the game. And that is Warpgate. Got to play Titan's Tactics. Titan's Tactics is a relatively obscure two-player tactics game. It's no luck, and it has some of the hallmarks of what I call the claustrophobia school, a very stripped-down, accessible, focusing on the essential aspects of design. Not entirely unlike some of the things that Warpgate does, for example. Uh, But Titan Tactics has one thing uh, very clearly in common with claustrophobia, and that it dispenses with line-of-sight rules. And I'm always interested in games that find ways to do away with some of the more thorny bits that plague other designs. And... More on this later. More on this later. But Titan's Tactics is a game where you choose three champions and you slug it out with somebody. And the damage is abstracted in a really interesting way. No one ever dies. So it's just a question of if I do five points of damage to you, I advance five points on the damage track. doesn't matter who I'm targeting other than their special abilities, of which there are plenty. So you really get to focus on that fun stuff like manipulating special abilities and tactical positioning. It was. It got an expansion. It kind of flew under the radar for pretty much everybody. It was a small press, and it was the only thing they ever did, a company called Imbalanced Games. But I really enjoy Titan Tactics, and I got to introduce it to somebody new, and we played two games back-to-back. Very, very different both times. Very enjoyable. It's uh, the, the core game is available on various online retailers for very, very little money, and I sincerely recommend it to anybody who's a little bit tired of, you know, your bloated, overlong, kind of overloaded, component-heavy thing things. The reason why I wanted to play Titan Tactics again was because while playing Hate, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, Titan's Tactics would get me more satisfaction with much less overhead and much less time. And so I was glad I was able to to get that. I've been itching to play it for quite some time, and I had a very good time, and it won a convert. So that was Titan's Tactics. Uh, I finally got a chance to play another PAX game. It was PAX Renaissance. And I have to say, you know, in all confidentiality, I actually fell asleep during the rules explanation. Nothing to do with, you know, the way it was presented or anything, but it's just, it's a very rules-heavy game. Oh, yeah. But I enjoyed it much better than the other PAX game. PAX Palmer. PAX Palmer. In the fact that PAX Palmer, you, I think you really need to know that time period and to get the full benefit out of that game, where this one you could really see your engine forming. You're doing an east and a west type thing and you're building two different engines and you can see how that manipulates the map and how you can use this engine to pursue the multiple different ways to win the game 
And it just seems like it's a lot more streamlined and you can actually go for those victory things as opposed to them randomly appearing suddenly in front of somebody and saying, oh, piece of candy, I win. <laughs> There's a lot to like in Pox Palmer, but I agree with you that it's really undercut by the wildness of the victory conditions. There are four different possible victory conditions and the way they come up is only one of them is active at any given time and they can switch, you know, literally eight times before you get your next turn. Whereas in Pax Renaissance, and this is actually, this is this is how I teach the game now. I, I start with a heavy, heavy emphasis on the victory conditions. And then I try to explain that all the five billion operations that you can perform are all just tools to accomplish one or more of these, these end states. And when understood in that way, that all these dizzying array of ops and one shots and military actions and such are part of a toolbox to get into these very tangible ends, then you really start to see a little bit more of the strategic depth. And so I really, do, I really did appreciate that after the first, you know, the first couple turns, I kind of held your hand and said, well, look, this is why you might do this thing. But then you were immediately like, oh, okay, now I understand how to get to this part. And you were eyeing uh, my Henry the Navigador trying to kill him because you knew that you needed him gone for you to win on that victory condition. And a lot of interesting stuff happens. I mean, the way the way our game played out was you immediately arranged a marriage. I think it was Mehmed the Conqueror in the Ottoman Empire, correct? Correct. And then you exploited his military forces to conquer, I believe, pretty much everyone nearby. It was the Mamluks and the Papal States. He made friends. He made, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, he made a lot of enemies and then he murdered them. And I couldn't compete with you militarily. You just you, you were just running the table there. You were you were murdering people with siege attacks all over the place. But then I was able to enlist the help of Radu of the House of Dracul, who led a jihad into Hungary, turning it into a caliphate. And uh, I was pretty, my deck was pretty stacked with a whole bunch of very influential Muslim scholars. And so I was able to win a religious victory that way, even while you were still gobbling up almost all the pieces of territory available to you. So it's a game where you have to stay flexible. You ha Unfortunately, there's no two ways about it. You have to understand how all the operations work because otherwise it's going to feel a little bit like Pops, Pox Palmer. You know, something weird happens and then someone says, oh, okay, I win. And it's like, all right, fine. And my fault, the first few times I played Pax Renaissance, that's how it felt. And that, that's entirely on me because I didn't explain things properly or I wasn't quite in the right mindset. I am really enjoying Pax Renaissance more and more every time I play. And I'm so, so glad that despite the fact that you literally fell asleep during the rules explanation that you kind of appreciated it, I want to try to introduce it to more people under the right circumstances to try to, to try to see if there are other people who are able to appreciate it. It's a very impressive design. I wish the rulebook weren't quite so racist. I've talked about that a lot in all the games you like are bad. Playing the game, I'm still navigating my feelings about how much of the problematic worldview infects the actual game design. I'm very much evolving my opinion on Pax Renaissance, but suffice to say, there's enough meat there for a lot of opinions to evolve. So there's a lot, there's a lot in there. And one thing I will note, one small minor uh, uh, finale, I really do appreciate how all these Sierra Madre games are a lot of game in a very tiny box. It's true. It's quite, quite... And it's all done with cards, right? There's no board, no anything else, just cards and how you manipulate them. And you get these cute little boxes, and it's very nice. It's, it's very, very, very nice. nice. It's very nice. <laughs> so that was Pax Renaissance. Got to play another game of For Sale. Talked about Intrigue last week by Stefan Dora. Stefan Dora is probably best known for for, uh, for for Sale. Someone specifically around the gaming group said, I want something quick. And when it comes to fillers, For Sale is probably my favorite. If I don't feel like telling someone that something is a cockroach when really it's a bat. Uh, so if for something a little bit more Euro-E and less about just pure bluffing or dexterity or something like that, for sale is definitely my go-to auction game of choice. It's adorable. It's surprisingly cutthroat. It's got lots of tense choices. It's got weird turn order elements sometimes, but, you know, you can't take a game uh, that quick too, too seriously. And I just love auction games, and I miss the, the, the time when every Euro was an auction game. I try not to miss an opportunity to pull up for sale, and it won some more uh, some more converts. So that was for sale. And so those are the games we played last week. And on to the news and why it doesn't matter. The Mensa Select winners have been announced. And what I find strange, and let me try to calculate, uh, phrase this very carefully. So first of all, congratulations to the people who won the, won the awards. No shade on any of them, even Architects of the West Kingdom. You know, congratulations, they won an award. That's great. That's wonderful. What I don't know is why people pay attention, because it seems to be getting a fair amount of reaction, uh, both in the both in critical circles and in the user circles. But here's the deal about about uh, the Mensa Select competition. First of all, in order to be considered for the award, it's not like they have a jury that goes out and finds what they think are are notable entrants. Not that not that this is a pure system, of course. There's lots of influence and who knows who, but 
It's not that there's a jury or anything. Publishers have to pay a $300 entry fee and then supply them 20 copies of the game. Now, 23 copies of the game, whatever, that's fine. But you have to pay an entry fee to be considered. So that's already weird. And that's already excluding lots of small publishers. And furthermore, when did anyone ever care about Mensa anyway? I mean, Mensa is basically an organization for people who are very, very good at standardized tests. And I thought that we were over caring about standardized tests a while ago, unless you were a university that had to sort through 50,000 applicants. And even then, you probably shouldn't be relying on standardized tests anyhow. I mean, I could look if you're a member of Mensa, I don't mean to insult you personally. Mensa apparently is a great place to get together and do puzzles. And in fact, the founder of Mensa talked about how he, he, he was chagrined at how it became an organization for people who wanted to do puzzles together. Uh, the other founder of Mensa bemoaned the fact that everyone seemed to be coming from the middle and lower classes because he wanted it to be, and I quote, an aristocracy, end quote. Uh, but That enjoy doing puzzles. That <laughs> enjoy doing puzzles, right. Like, so I don't understand why we care about the Mensa Select winners for two reasons, both related to the organization and the way the Mensa Select winners are selected. That having been said... No shade whatsoever to designers. Their work needs to be recognized, and congratulations to those who won. And among them, uh, one of the people who got recognized was uh, our good friend, uh, namely a person we've never met, Eric Lang. So good good on him. And best game ever made, Architects of the West Kingdom. Oh, it's a fantastic game. I play it all the time. It, it's fantastic. My one piece of news is a cute little fantastic little game called Bubble Tea from Renegade Game Studios. And the art is fantastic, very reminiscent of Sushi Go, and it comes with a bunch of dice, and it looks like you're going to uh, complete orders and do all sorts of things with cute little bubble tea characters, and I can't wait to uh, check it out. Renegade has been publishing, have been announcing and showing off lots of card games with art that is just grabbing your attention lately. It's so true. I like Renegade as a studio. I think they do some interesting stuff, so good on them. So there's going to be a Vampire the Masquerade game that I actually find somewhat interesting. I have no enthusiasm for Vampire the Masquerade as a setting. A lot of people do. You know, more power to you. If Smoke him if you got him, if, as I always say. But this is going to be Vampire the Masquerade Blood Feud, which is a 4-32 to 32 player mega game. And this is the first instance of someone advertising a boxed product as a mega game. A mega, mega games are typically event-type things that are run by companies that exist so as to run mega games. You know, I, I've always pictured it as, as kind of an experience like Mega Civ, but on steroids, a little bit more structured than that. And so it's mega not just by virtue of the number of players. And sure enough, Vampire the Masquerade Blood Feud is going to have to have one to two storytellers. They promise that the storytellers are active participants in the game and actually get to play. Who knows? Suffice to say, I'm just intrigued. It's a kind of product that we haven't really seen uh, published, and certainly not with a relatively mainstream gaming IP. So I'm just very, very curious about what's going to come of it from a structural perspective, regardless of the fact that I don't have any enthusiasm for the theme. So I can't wait to hear more news about Blood Feud. Finally, uh, there's going to be another tiling game from Reiner Knizia, and I will always and forever... Stop shaking your head, Walker. This is perfectly reasonable. I can stop whenever I want to. I don't have a problem. This is going to be called Babylonia, and it is described... We have very little information to go on it now uh, at the moment, but it is a hex-based map where you're laying out tiles. This is something that Reiner Knizia does very, very, very well. And I always am looking forward to what he's going to do next in the tiling space. We don't see a lot of tiling games that are more gamerly uh, so much anymore. Again, everything's t- uh, uh, Tableau Builders, and that's fine. Uh, but it's going to be coming out later this year called Babylonia, and I am very enthusiastic. As am I. I've never been... That's news to me. We should start a news segment so we get these awesome news things. Now, on to the feature game this week, which is Batman. No. Yes. Yes, it's is, Batman. Which is, yeah. No, I am Batman. I am Batman. Which is Batman, Gotham City Chronicles. No, I'm Batman. So who designed this game, Mark? You're just teeing me up for the French, aren't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was designed by Frédéric Henry uh, from Monolith. He has designed a number of things in the past. He designed uh, some uh, big box games like The Adventurer's Temple of Shaq. And he's also responsible for the Timeline series of games, of which there are, uh, I think, as of last counting, 362 iterations, almost enough for one of every day of the year. And he was also involved in the Conan board game, which was put out by Monolith a few years ago on Kickstarter. Conan also had the design credits, though, of a bunch of other French designers who show up a lot 
in development work. And I've t- t- talked about Laurent Pouchin and Croc, and a lot of those other guys just showed up. I think it's because they were mostly involved in scenario design, but now he is the only one with the design credit of uh, Batman Gotham City Chronicles. It was kickstarted, and it was just f- uh, fulfilled... Uh, some people don't have their copies yet, actually, uh, but fulfillment is ongoing, and it is uh, hot off the presses. So why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Batman Gotham City Chronicles? In Batman Gotham City Chronicles, you are Batman. No, I am Batman. You are parkouring over walls. You are jumping down into darkly lit parking alleys. You are punching out villains. You are shooting your grappling hook across, swinging across from car to car, you're throwing batarangs, you're working with your teammates, and in essence, it does sort of get pulled together in the end that you do feel like this is happening, and that is Batman, Gotham City Chronicles. I am Batman. No, I'm Batman. So to a certain extent, I have to say that my review of Gotham City Chronicles is going to be parallel to some of the aspects of the way I talked about Catacombs. Which is, at its best, it does something really, really, really well. In one game, and this is going to be a bit like the session report of Pax Renaissance. In one game, I was in a posi- I was playing Batman because I'm Batman, and I grappled from a shipping crate to a gantry via the special bat device of a grappling hook. I landed in the middle of a bunch of goons. I put three of them into traction with uh, a cool combo move. And then I hit the penguin so hard he transubstantiated into a fine mist. And those things together, the sort of uh, mobility with a bat gadget and then fisticuffs, those specific elements and the way they were rendered were really on point, really part of the theme, really evocative and really fun. And I think that is mostly what I have to say positive about Batman Gotham City Chronicles. Uh, the rest of the stuff is either neutral to negative. But that is, I, I, just, I just want to stress, that is no mean to minimize how successful a design is if at times I felt like I was doing Batman stuff. Because that's, that's not a small lift. That's a heavy thing to, to accomplish. And well, wh- that's what I want to key on first is why does it work? And I think it works because it's all low fantasy. You know, Batman, no superpowers. And usually his friends, no superpowers. In that world, it's all low fantasy. It's all fisticuffs. Everyone's almost on an equal playing field. So it's not hard to balance that out. And it gives you that feeling of, you know, normal guy doing really cool things. And I think that is why it works so well. And part and parcel of that, structurally speaking, Batman Gotham City Chronicles is a 1v all game. So there's someone running the the overlord who's running the nemesis and all the all the villains and all the thugs, of which there will be several. And then each player nominally controls one superhero, a member of the Bat family, uh, or, you know, you can have one player run several at one time and more on that later. And I will say that another thing that Batman Gotham City Chronicles does relatively well is the how vulnerable the the bat heroes are feels just right because in i think a good I, i'm no expert in comics and i'm sure the internet will rush in with one voice to talk about how wrong i am about all elements of superherodom because you know i don't talk about star trek anymore that's definitely something i don't i don't get to do in public and uh, i probably shouldn't talk about comics in public either but you always get the sense that 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 if batman takes the wrong step Batman's just some guy. He can get the snot beat out of him in the wrong context. And very often, 1v all games, the heroes are either too vulnerable or too invulnerable. And so you don't really feel like you're going to get anywhere. So, for example, we talked about Mutant Chronicles and how the goons in Mutant Chronicles pretty much can't touch the heroes most of the time. Whereas in Gotham City Chronicles, Batman can mop the floor with people when he's on the offense. But when he's on the defense, if he gets mobbed, he's in trouble. And so I really liked that balance. I thought that was pretty well done. Let's talk about that because that's how the whole game sort of works. It's with these cubes and you're spending them on your turn and you have to decide how many you're going to keep because there's like an active pool, an inactive pool, and your wound pool. These three pools, they're connected in a straight line and they sort of flow back and forth between these pools. So at the beginning of your turn, you're either active or resting and that'll tell you how many cubes you're going to transfer from your inactive pool to your active pool. And then you spend those on your turn to do various actions. They're going to cost various number of cubes on depending on how well you want to do them. And then you decide, you know, you're done because you want to save some of these active cubes for defense. And then if you take wounds, 
you know, they move from the inactive pool to, you know, the wound the wound section. And if you still don't have enough, then you got to start taking them from your active pool. And it works the same way as well. If you transfer enough over and you, there's not enough in the inactive pool to go into your active pool, then you get to take some wounds and put them into the inactive pool. It's sort of a way to heal. And I think the way that all works together, the decision-making, you know, how much you want to do, how much you want to risk it, I really think that works very well in this game. For the most part, I agree with you, but there are some niggling problems that I think work its way into the structure of the game. Let me let me be specific. When we talked about 1v all games, and we've talked about it in the topic, we talked about it in Catacombs, you often end up with these awkward player count situations. And I really do appreciate that in Batman Gotham City Chronicles, there are scenarios that are nominally for two players, nominally for three players, nominally for four. The problem is controlling one hero is engaging, but... Very often, either because you've been wounded or just because you've gone and done even basic things, you then have to rest during your turn. And when you rest during your turn, you do nothing. You basically skip a turn. And in a seven-turn game, that's not particularly fun or engaging. And when I've been controlling one hero, and over the course of a game I have to rest a couple times over the course of the mission, just because I was out doing things, not even necessarily because I, I got mobbed, that's not particularly fun. So then I'm, I really want to control multiple heroes in order for that to be sufficiently engaging. And I feel that lessens your ability to be flexible with player count if you always want to be in the game. Because skipping a turn sucks. And the downtime gets annoying. And it really, I think, undercuts the cleverness of this energy management system in that it forces you to have these unpleasant decisions. If it were a question of marshalling your resources, just, just the way it would be in other kinds of resource management games, or if it were a question like in level seven, a mega protocol of the more I do, the more my enemy gets to do, that's all well and good. But the problem is all this cleverness comes to a point in making you skip turns, which I do not approve of. It's true. It is a bad mechanism, but I think in this game it works out because it really gives the villain a chance to come back, right? And if if you, you know, brought the, the heroes back a bit, made them less powerful, then it wouldn't be as fun. So they give them this one, you know, this resting thing, and it sort of evens it out, but still makes them feel that much more powerful. I believe, I, I'm agreeing with you, there is a little bit downtime, but the villain only gets, you know, to activate two units and... Everyone else can go at the same time. I really think the flow in this game is 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 there, especially once people learn how to play the game. I think it goes move relatively fast. As you saw in the last game that we played, we got through it very quickly. And I think even when you're skipping a turn, not, I don't want to get into this particular part, not counting the setup and teardown, but just the actual <laughs> playing part. I think it moves very quickly. I think the downtime is low. So resting one turn is not fantastic, but it's not too, too terrible. So should we talk about the overlord role? The villain. The villain or the overlord is pretty well the reason why I bought this game. They have the same, because it has the same sort of mechanism they have in Conan, where it's this sliding chain like they have in... The river. The river, like they have in Civilization Age of New Dawn or Dawn of New Age. Civilization New Dawn. New Dawn. Whereas if you're going to take the very first unit on the left of the river, it only costs you one of these cubes. You usually get five a turn. And then it goes up one, two, three, four, five, six. You have to spend that many to reactivate units because as soon as you activate them, they move to the back of the river and everything slides up. So, you know, you cycle through your guys. And if you want to keep using the same one, it's going to cost you. But if you use them all, then it's cheaper and you get to do more things. And I really think that's a very interesting and and I found it a fun way to play. I really enjoyed it. The management of the river definitely makes it more engaging than, say, being the overlord in a game of Descent or Imperial Assault. That part was cool. It's not just activate everybody you've got one at a time. You have to decide who to activate. I personally, and this is sort of a neutral point, this is just a personal preference issue, these tiles that you're activating correspond to groups of thugs, and they tend to start off with three or four in the group. If a couple of them have been knocked out, say because Batman landed on them so hard that they've been knocked into next week, then you suddenly have to make decisions more based on who has enough figures left rather than issues of, say, tactical advantage or anything like that. And it made me feel more like an HR manager than it did a supervillain concocting schemes. It's also the case, and this this part, again, is just a personal preference issue. The villains always felt kind of uh, unsatisfying. You don't really get the sense that you have a big whammy uh, to save up for every round. They just seem like some other goon that Batman can, or one of ba his Bat friends can disintegrate the moment they spend enough attention on them, which makes perfect sense. 
you know, Penguin or the Joker or even Bane is not going to last very long uh, the moment that one of the superheroes puts their sights on them. And that's cool. That's thematic. That's fine. And it's not cheap to get rid of them. It's just relatively straightforward. And so being an overlord, I felt, was slightly better than a lot of other games of this ilk, but not necessarily what I would call a compelling tactical experience. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the heroes and the fact that there are so many and the fact that they all play very differently. And I feel this is because they're all sort of pre-leveled up. They all come with a ton, more on this later, of of unique uh, abilities and traits and skills. So you're automatically all leveled up. So every mission feels like you can do something unique that only you can do and that you're sort of uh, specialized towards a certain part. Either, you know, you're really good at hacking or or support or something like that. And, and I think it uh, may, will make every game more fun than usual. You're not, you're not worried about, you know, racing to kill things to get the XP or worrying about, you know, well, what am I going to choose next or things like that. You're all like pre-leveled up and I think it's a great way. So before we get to further discussion of icons and such, because that I think is a big category about which I have many grievances, it's going to be like Festivus come early. The scenarios play into this a little bit because specialization is very helpful when uh, choosing, kidding out who you're going to play in Batman Gotham City Chronicles. And the scenarios tend to give you a fixed list of people you can choose from. So player one can choose any one of these three flavors of Batman. Player two can change, can choose between this version of Robin, this Nightwing, and this Batgirl, whatever. And that, that's more flexibility than I anticipated. I was expecting it just to be fixed characters. But you do have to look towards, towards the scenario objective because this is a scenario-based game. And many of the scenarios seem designed around what I will call uh, gate checks. You know, in order for the heroes to win, they need to perform a difficulty six hacking check or a difficulty six lockpicking check or a difficulty six demolitions check. So naturally, it makes sense to look at the heroes and say, okay, well, this flavor of Batman can hack computers, but this one can't and so on and so forth. That part's all well and good. But I don't really like the scenario design because when it comes to difficulty six gate checks, it's not interest. It's not an interesting strategic gameplay trade-off because all you have to do is have your friends clear out the area and then march the person who has got the best chance, toss as many cubes as you can to the action, and then roll your dice and hope you get lucky. And I respect the fact that this is a game with dice rolling and there's there's it's going to be lucky. But in other games with scenario designs like this, usually what you can build in is well, if you fail the check, what that does is it makes the next check easier. Or you need to do a larger number of small difficulty checks so that even perhaps none of the non-specialized characters can contribute instead of just playing crowd control. And of the scenarios we've played, they have all come down to victory or loss for the good guys has always come down to difficulty six checks. And I don't think that does the game, that plays the game to its strengths. Notice what, remember what we said at the beginning, what we both find so compelling is swinging around and punching people and doing bat type stuff. Well, that's why I have a note here that sort of plays into this, that you can do whatever you want. You just have to pay the cubes to do it. And then at the end, you might not be completely successful. But, you know, if you need to, you know, punch this guy, shoot a batarang over there and then backflip up under the thing and, and punch the button, you can do all that. It's that, it's just that you wonder if punching that button did what you needed it to do or not, that is the thing. So it's, 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 I still like it, like the fact that you can do all of the, like the physical stuff, you're pretty well unlimited, but comes down to these other things, then you have to, you know, take the chance and roll the dice. I'm not saying it's, that's a great thing because I agree with you, like Imperial Assault, now with the app, even you're like adding your number of successes in and eventually you're going to get there or other games where, you know, you just sort of build up. And I, I agree with you 100% that it does take away because it leads it down to this one big role. And sometimes it, it's not very uh, rewarding for sure. Let me just put it this way. It's, it's, it's one of the classic problems that I've identified before where the fun play is radically at odds with the smart play. The fun plays are doing all that awesome stuff we've talked about. But the smart play, the one that wins the scenario, eventually someone's going to say, I take my free moves, I, I put all my cubes into this, and I roll and see if I succeed to hack the computer. Which, again, it's fine enough. Like, Batman spends a lot of time hacking computers and picking locks and disarming bombs and all that other kind of stuff. It's just, it's not the fun part of the game, and it's the most consequential to success or failure in the scenarios, and that just rubs me the wrong way. All right, so let's talk about the dashboards again, because we're just talking about doing abilities and stuff. So you're spending these act active cubes, and I think we both like this part where they've got sections down each side of your board and you're placing the cubes in. Well, I really like this part of the design is the fact that there's a maximum number of cubes you can put into some of these slots. And I really think that leads, once again, to interesting decision-making, because some characters are like, 
well, he can only have three cubes in his, you know, punching slot. So am I going to do like three punches and sort of like try to kill three guys or one big punch? And or same thing with hacking. He can only do the, the fact that they they did that. I think that it really adds to the game. I agree. That part's great. Tons of missions. 60 page mission book. They all seem fairly balanced. It all came down to like the last turn. It was like either do or die. So, you know, relatively close. Some of the missions that I've read about, I've, I've browsed through some of the other missions. And again, some of the missions are tailored to specific player counts, so you can't always play. If you've got four people around the table, you're only going to be playing from a subset of them. But there's still a, fr- a pretty good vari- variety. Uh, I've seen reports on BoardGameGeek about some of the missions and people's attempts to succeed in them. And honestly, the balance on a lot of them looks pretty rough. Uh, Some of them involve, you know, having to disarm a whole bunch of bombs that are far apart from each other. And people have been posting walkthroughs of saying, okay, look, assuming that the villain does nothing against me and I succeed all my roles, here's how difficult it is to succeed at this particular mission. And I have to say that the support on the part of the developers generally, and this is going to be true later on in some of our other uh, comments, has been good. They've been very active. Uh, But, you know, some of the fundamental problems that people have identified, certainly in terms of mission structure, don't necessarily lead me to be very confident that all the scenarios are going to be balanced. Like the the, the last scenario we played, all the villain groups were not four goons, but three goons. I was paying attention to how the Overlord was playing, and he seemed to be doing a relatively clever job. I would have done some things differently, but it seemed rough for his position, and we won on turn five of seven. So we were not particularly stressed as the Bat family, so I'm not I'm not as confident as you are about the balance, but it's pretty good. It's certainly not as bad as, say, Catacombs or a lot of other 1v all games. So we've pretty well touched all my good points, and now we're going to go into some bad points. But before we do this, I'm going to just put an overall statement because I... I think this is a fantastic game. I think there are a ton of 1v all or, or you know, these action type adventure games out there that are very flowy and basic and easy to teach, easy to learn, simple rule books, easy to remember, you know, pull out of the box, play, have fun, put it away, okay? And I just do not think that this is one of those games. I believe... This Batman game is for those hardcore people who want to play this game over and over again, learn it, know what's going on, and I think this, and they, those type of people will get the most out of this game. And this is how I'm going to, what I'm going to use to defend all of these points. (laughs) But it will not work for all of them, because let's start with my first one, which is the rule book in general is quite painful. (sighs) Yeah, I agree with you. It was not to my taste. A number of very crucial elements are mentioned once, and a lot of other unnecessary structural elements are repeated over and over. But we don't necessarily seem to be in the majority on this. Again, I've been paying attention on the fora, both on BoardGameGeek and elsewhere, and the consensus seems to be that the rulebook structure is exactly what a lot of people want out of a rulebook. So as far as that's concerned, I'm willing to give it a wash. Not to my taste, but other other people seem to like it. Well, where I find it was mostly unclear is the fact that we're going to be talking about talking about soon how the fact there are so many skills and I feel as though how the skills interact with each other was not covered enough like does this work with that skill or can I you know capitalize this on top of actually I just realized that it was a point I didn't talk about all of these skills have numbers associated with them and in these types of user game it's like a multiplier or something that you add on and I think they did a much better job in this this was just like it was a very minimal thing and I and so it was like, you know, martial arts one. It doesn't mean you get to roll extra dice or, you know, more random things. It was just like, no, you get to add one success as long as you scored one success. And I think that those types of skills are the best way to do it. I think that was a very interesting way to do it. Yes. So l- let's talk about broader usability issues. Because one word that kept coming up, both from my perspective and some other people around the table, was unforgivable. And that's a strong word. And I stand by it. There are a number of usability issues in Batman Gotham City Chronicles that I genuinely believe are unforgivable and ought never to have passed development stage. True, but I think it's all going to fall into the same area. What area would that be? Well, it would be the fact that there's multiple maps for each mission and the board itself. So it's all to do with the, the surface that we're playing on. That is one area of unforgivable usability issues. I was just going to start with the skills because that's what we're talking about. So more on boards in in a second. So on a given player's dashboard, you're going to have probably at least four, probably many more skills that are all represented by icons and no text. The first problem is the icons are in different locations and different characters. Already, 
serious problem. Number two, they could have put a description of the abilities on the back of the character dashboard. You just flip it over and it, it tells you what the abilities do or even just gives them a name. It's true because you don't actually place anything on the character part of the dashboard. You can easily pull that off and flip it over at any time. But they wanted everything to be language independent, which is purely for their benefit, not for the user's benefit. But the story on the back of the card is all in English. Exactly. It's, it's English and French. And so for all the other language editions, they still had to produce components in other uh, languages. And if they had produced an English language only version, they could have just put the text of the abilities at least somewhere. There are no player aids, not a one. This is a deluxe expensive product. And there are absolutely no player aids. You have to print them off yourself. That's not cool. Uh, that's just, especially when there are all these abilities. So at the start of a game, when you're setting up, the overlord needs to check the dozen or so abilities that they need to do in an alphabetized list, but they don't know what the abilities are called. They're all just these pictures. So you're scanning the last 10 pages of the rule book, trying to match things up with pictures. Is this springy boot? No, this is spiky boot as opposed to winged boot, which is what we call it. Uh, because that's how we, you know, we're just scanning for boots, looking for them. They're not organized by type. It's not the case that all the movement abilities are organized in the same place in the rule book, not on the dashboards either. And so it's it's a mess. On top of that, the abilities are not so intuitive that you can always remember what they do. Martial arts is a shining example. You just add a success if you roll a success, fine. But there are lots of other melee abilities that add dice in certain contexts. What color of die? Well, better look that up. It's not color-coded on the ability. It's not color-coded in the rulebook either. You have to go check the text of the actual rulebook in the context of this alphabetized list and better, better hope you remember it. Or maybe that one doesn't refer to an extra success. Maybe it means you get a free reroll under certain narrowly construed circumstances. All of these abilities are cool, but trying to make sure you're playing them properly is a bit of a usability nightmare. I could go on and on, I, but that, that's, that's a brief guided tour of my problems with the special abilities. I agree with all your points, but then I'm going to just jump back. I'm not going to keep jumping back, but I think the point is mute if you play the game a lot. Yeah, sure, probably. But after having played the same kind of character with the same kind of skills several times, I still couldn't remember what color of die certain things would add or whether one thing was combo attack or circular attack because they both involve disembodied fists moving in a certain True. pattern. Or whether, you know, it was, you know, based on the die you already rolled in yep. combat or a different color. Yep, okay. absolutely. Okay, let's get, let's go on to the multiple maps. So when you have a mission, it'll give you a map. That will tell you where to lay out all the villains and where the heroes start and where to put all the little terrain bits on. And then in a different part of the rule book, there'll be another map that will tell you all of the different elevations because they're not listed on the board itself. It'll also tell you if there are walls or not and which objects you can jump back and forth from and which objects you can climb. And, and, and... Yeah, I think that's it. So the map board, they look very nice. They're still festooned with numbers because there's at least two data points. Uh, there's two data points on the overwhelming majority of areas, one represented numerically, and uh, sometimes they don't have the extra little dot for, for line of sight purposes. I will say that they do line of sight pretty well. Line of sight's pretty good in Batman and Gotham City Chronicles, but... You're absolutely right. The elevations are represented graphically by circles, and the bigger the circle gets, you then make inferences about the relative elevations of things, but that doesn't give you the number of movement points it takes to go from point A to point B. For that, you need to cross-reference something at the back of the scenario book. Additionally, that's bad enough. Then there are the special jumping maneuvers that you can do, which again are part of the cool parts of the game that are not printed anywhere on the map, and you need to check at the back of the rulebook to see, oh, I can jump from this truck to that truck because it's not represented anywhere graphically on the board whatsoever. And then there's the issue, and this is, this is the part where we go from cumbersome to unforgivable, of is this white line a wall, or is it the white line delineating two adjacent areas that I can move between at no additional cost? And we several times were looking at the board and saying, oh, wait, that, that's a white line. Is that, is that, is that a wall? Is that, I, I have to check if that's a wall. And I've never, that I can recall in my gaming history, ever had to check a reference work to see if something was a wall or a white line delineating open space. Or a white line on a road or just, or just, <laughs> just art. Because in one case, it was just art on the board. Yes. They could have put this stuff on the board. There's already symbols all over the place on these maps. The fact that they chose not to, I have to assume, was for aesthetic purposes. And maybe it's the case that it would have been really, really, really hard to get that level of detail on the maps and still have it be visually usable. I don't know. Maybe they tried, maybe they didn't. But I can definitely tell you that the end result 
is fabulously cumbersome. Agreed. So I have one more point that I think is bad design and the rest are just, I think, personal preference. So another rule that they stacked on top of everything else is this encumbrance. (laughs) So they've given all items and stuff in the game a weight. Yes, yes, we're playing old school D&D where everything has a weight and you have to track weight. And if you're carrying so much weight, then it's going to change what some of these skills do. I'm not lying. This is something that is in the game. Yeah, I I had difficulty believing it. What's even more shocking is that it practically never comes into play, but it still occupies significant visual space on the part of every character's dashboard. And so I can't tell if it's a combination of, I can't believe the system exists. I can't believe they spent so much time with it, despite the fact that it never triggers. So I don't know whether I'm angry or resentful that that it never comes into play. I just wish it had not been involved at all, and we we therefore would have had some element of visual cleanliness in the sea of numbers and pictures that exists on even the most basic of units. All right, so now uh, that's so for some personal preference bad points. I think I find it a little punchy. You know, I I never got to play the Conan, so you just you know it's either shooting arrow or swinging a sword. So I'm sure it's the same, but it just seems. And I talked about why it worked is because. Batman is just a real man, and, you know, that's what he does. You just go, but just, I don't think he's real. I'm he sorry just, to break this just, to you. He just, Him and Santa Claus? You just jump around, and you punch, and then you jump somewhere else, and you punch again. It's punch, punch, They're punch. They're make-believe people. They didn't really give you any special maneuver, like combat maneuvers you could do. That would have been a little bit more interesting, maybe. But it just seemed like I'm going to do all these cool parkour moves and grapple over, and I'm going to punch you again like I punched everybody else a second ago. <laughs> So mostly to sum up, I mean, here's what I have to say. At its best, you feel like a superhero, a very particular kind of superhero, and that's great. The problem is to get there, you have to ignore the times when you're resting, the times when you're actually pursuing scenario objectives, which I don't find satisfying, the prolonged setup period, which is par for the course for games of this ilk mostly, and all the other nonsense with the tremendous usability issues. And then on top of that, we've been doing this kind of thing for a long time, and there are lots of other games in the genre from which you can choose. We've talked about Level 7 Omega Protocol, which also has interesting activation elements. It's going to cost you less than a third of the price, and it doesn't have a lot of these problems. You can go for any number of the co-ops that exist in this space, of which there are now dozens, and a lot of them are really good. Uh, Some of them are very interesting as well. You know, whether it's Space Cadets, Away Mission, Assault on Doomrock, Claustrophobia, Too Many Bones, Heroes of Terror, off even, whether it's whether it's Descent, whether it's Imperial Assault, I would rather play those than Batman, honestly, because of just the fact that there's less barrier between me and the good stuff insofar as there's good stuff to be had. So I like what they do sometimes. It's just those moments for me are too few and far between, and they're buried under lots of usability problems. Well, I'm just going to go back to what I said before. If you need a game where you want to be Batman and you want to play it a lot, and this is going to be a core game for your group, I think this is the one. I'm keeping this game. I'm going to play this game more. I'm looking forward to playing this game more. And that is Batman Gotham City Chronicles. Wish it didn't have Bat-Cow. I wish it didn't come in two boxes. I hate two boxes. What do you have against Bat-Cow? It's Bat-Cow, no. Okay. No, No such thing as Bat-Cow. Love There's it. no such thing as Batman either. Jeez. <laughs> you do know that Batman doesn't exist, right? Lies. I'm Batman. Well, no, I'm Batman, but I'm not Batman because... Oh, jeez. This is complicated. I swore I wasn't going to get metaphysics in, into the show. All right, and that is how we feel about Batman Gotham City Chronicles by Monolith Games. On to our topic of the week, which is changing tastes over time like as we play more games as we get older as our groups change as all sorts of lifestyle changes things changing do our tastes in board games change do our collections evolve over time and why do these things happen so walker have your tastes changed over time i think for sure i've i've got some i've put it in this context of you know something versus something like why you know i used to like this and now i like this type thing. Well, could we could we just start though with a nice little capper of sure. the Batman Gotham City Chronicles review? Because I recall just we, last week, just last week, you said specifically, "I'm done with miniatures." In weeks past, before that, you said, "Do we really need another one v all dice pool building game?" Several times, and yet here we are with a minis heavy one v all dice pool building. Well, game. <laughs> multiple multiple reasons why. Like when you get into these buckets of plastic, they never give you a decent way to store it or to organize it. Sure. In, 
I will go back nicer points. They have sure. fantastic boxes, a fantastic organizational picture on the top. There's no question about where they go. They fit in. You get the guys out. You put them away. It does take a little bit longer, but they did a great job of that part of the game. Okay, fine. So, look, I'll say I'll say this with respect to my evolving tastes, first of all. Early on when I was in the hobby, and this is, uh, I, I got into board games, I'd say, about 15 years ago, roughly, in a, in a, in a, in a serious way. Like I, I played some Battletech before that and, and, of course, played, you know, a couple of games of Magic in high school, but who doesn't? It's practically part of the curriculum now. But early on, I really couldn't differentiate well, I think, between system mastery and quality of decision making. And so for me, I, I got very enthusiastic about subsystems. And so I, I thought that the more subsystems there were, clearly the, the, the more detailed and engrossing the game was. And I don't really feel that way anymore. Uh, when it comes to Euros specifically, for example, I often fault modern Euros for getting overloaded with systems and not really having quality decision making. That's one of the reasons why I really turn back to Splatter games often, because they do tend to be heavier, and, they, and I'm not saying they're rules light, but they don't tend to have subsystems for the sake of subsystems. They tend to give you this little sandbox and say, okay, go play with this stuff, and you get a lot of different possibilities and a lot of strategic choices, kind of sort of like Pax Renaissance. Heavy, detail-oriented, but it's not about grappling with a system. It's more about being able to identify the right tools to get to the right end. And sometimes, this isn't even games that are, that are uh, uh, toolbox heavy, like your Cerebria, like your Pax Renaissance, like your Splatter games. Sometimes it's just a greater appreciation for some of the games that I've always been playing the entire time, which is, you know, the Reiner Knizia tiling games and stuff like that. So that's one area in which I feel that, like my tastes have evolved, and probably for the better, I think. My main area I'm going to talk about is luck versus no luck. I mm. think back when I started, lo- loved Risk 2110, you know, rolling dice games, take that card games, all sorts of craziness and random things happening for whatever reason I thought was great. Now I hate most of those things. <laughs> I like more deterministic Euro type, you know, plan ahead type things. And that's a way better uh, game for me. It, it's weird because for me, uh, to a large extent, it's gone the other way. My tolerance for randomness in some contexts has actually increased. I th- now, I would say uh, it's because I'm able to better differentiate between randomness for the sake of randomness and randomness that opens up greater possibility of, of gameplay experiences. This isn't necessarily the best example, but I really appreciate games like Senji, like Cosmic Encounter, games where, to a certain extent, you have to navigate a sea of chaos, try to equip yourself as best you can for situations that you know are going to be unpredictable, and then whoever who, broadly speaking, is better able to navigate these chaotic waters comes out on top. It's very blood rage-like, you know what I mean? There's tons of stuff happening. You just sort of have to gauge ways. So that's where the whole game is chaotic, right? I, and I agree with you. Those are usually work out to be great experiences. Sure. But in, so, so let's, let me just talk about a specific example like in Senji, right? You're going into a battle, and it's going to be resolved by dice. And you might go into a battle with a fistful of combat support. So you know you're going to be able to mitigate the dice, uh, dice results. Or you might decide that you want to press your luck and test and see if you can go in without uh, a, a, a fistful of card results. There are going to be enough fights over a game of Senji that if you always take the risk, it's exceptionally unlikely that that's going to be a successful strategy, but it allows you to try to mitigate the results, and it also allows you to, at certain times, take strategic gambits so as to try to hope to advance your position in that sense. And it's it's stuff like that where you're able to, again, try to identify the tools that you can exploit to navigate randomness. That's something that I have much more tolerance of now than I did when I started out in the hobby. All right, I we, we tend to go t- more towards full co-op games now as opposed to the one V all games just because it just it, they tend to work out better mechanically. Yeah, and, and similarly, uh, I, I used to have much more tolerance for multiplayer solitaire. Again, because uh, 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago, I had much more enthusiasm for system mastery and like, like watching the systems manipulate themselves and so forth. And so I didn't really mind that I had my head down and I was just doing my own thing for, for many games. Now, there are still some multiplayer solitaire games that, that we enjoy, but by and large, my tolerance for it, especially in the context of, of you know, your standard resource manipulation euros, has gone way, way, way down. I tend to really be tired of the traitor element in any game, like be it, you know, Dead of Winter or... Shadows over Camelot. Shadows over Camelot. Games like this, I just, or uh, I never like really like Battlestar Galacta. It was mostly just, you know, the fun of playing the game. The actual game itself was terrible. But just this traitor element when, when one person is working against everybody else in secret, I'm just done with that. 
What were the games earlier on that you had some enthu- where you had some enthusiasm for that? Well, I didn't like I said I didn't mind it so much in Battlestar Galactica because it was just fun to play. But now, just thinking about you know, well, one person is constantly working against you, or you know, it just doesn't seem either fun for me to be that person or you know worrying about it the whole time. I wish to a certain extent that I could have met this earlier Walker who's, who possibly would have had more tolerance for things like The Resistance or Good Critters or those kind of social games where I can just see you tuning straight out and you lean back in your chair and you cross your arms and people try to engage you in deals and you're like, I'll just see what's going to happen. Maybe maybe a Walker of a couple decades ago would have would have been more enthusiastic for such things. That's a shame. So uh, rules very oh just like Batman Gotham. So rule rules deep games like this that are that are very hard, that are very in depth and lengthy versus games that are easy to remember and easy to teach. I I tend to now gravitate more towards more complicated games. Then it's like okay, well this is going to be easier to teach people or easier to get to the table. I tend not to care about that much more and and enjoy the actual mechanics of the game instead. Yeah, I, tr- I was actually taking a look at some of my ratings uh, from back in the day, and I used to – I think this is less a, ta- a question of my tastes changing as the market changes making clear what my tastes were the entire time. And again, I, I don't think uh, – other than what I've talked about in terms of you know multiplayer solitaire and system mastery, I never really liked – you know, going up and down tracks. Uh, I don't really like tableau builders that overstay their wel- their welcome. Although more on game length in a moment, and I really, I really do feel, and this this helps explain a lot of my indifference towards things like Coimbra. My comparative lack of enthusiasm for Teotihuacan. I like Teotihuacan, but I'm not in love with it like a, like a lot of other people are. I just don't think that the sort of medium to heavy Euro market is catering to my tastes the way that it used to about 10 to 15 years ago. 10 to 15 years ago, everything was an auction game followed by action selection, and that's kind of my jam. I really, I really did like that and I was willing to play lots and lots of different games of that type. That just doesn't seem to be where the market is right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, not my taste changing, but the market changing. I did, however, used to be, back earlier on in my days, very indifferent to uh, player count and the people I was playing with. So if a game is three to five, chances are excellent it's not going to be equally good with three players, four players, and five players. There are some exceptions, and you should absolutely treasure those games. You know, Raw feels very, very different between three, four, and five players, but I would play it with any of those player counts. Uh, Kalamala, same deal. I would play it with any any of the, the player counts from three to five. Some games, though, you really need the full five. Like, for example, El Grande says it's two to five, but, you know, really, it's four or five, mostly five. Anyway, everyone already knows this. Back in the day when I was first getting started, I didn't have the necessary discernment. And again, it was all about the systems. And so, I, you know, it says, it says it on the box that it must be true. And it took me a while to really key into the fact that these were all lies. And similarly, I was also willing to play games with anybody because I was just so enthusiastic about the games. And I've always been a little less social about the hobby than you've been. It, it, it's, it's evident from what a misanthropic jerk I am. And uh, it took me a few years of, of playing games to really realize, no, there are just some people I don't want to spend time with regardless of, of what we're doing. And I became far more selective of who to play games with as a consequence. I'm 100% in the same boat because if there were seven people there, then I would play seven-person Converna or <laughs> you know, whatever it was. And now I'm just like, nope, we're not playing that. It's like, oh, but there's six of us. Let's play. Nope. <laughs> no, we are not. I'm being a jerk about it, but it's just true. It's it's just not an enjoyable experience, right? Why take this thing that is fantastic and fun and turn it into something that is painful and awful? Yeah, just being a little bit more sensitive to, and this is something that you talk about all the time very, very well, I think, sensitive to the proper environment for the proper activity, both in terms of the company you're keeping and the number of people. Back when the hobby was newer to me, I was just much less discerning about those those aspects, and now I value them a lot more, which is mostly why I've grafted onto your social competence and uh, exploit you like as a lamprey does a shark. So another thing I have here is game theme used to be enough to carry the game versus the solid rules. Like regardless how bad the rules were, if the theme was really cool and fun, then you know I could get through an exp- you know a game and still enjoy it. Now so much if it is a bad game, then I'm sorry, it's it doesn't really matter what it's about. It's just a bad game. Now that you mention it, if anything, I as well have been going in the opposite direction. I used to be entirely indifferent to theme mostly. Now, if a game is able to precisely capture a very specific thing better than other games, if it's really evocative in terms of its execution of the theme in a satisfying way, I will be willing to forgive more, more, more faults. Like, I, 
talking about Batman Gotham City Chronicles. If it didn't make me feel like Batman ever, I would have had nothing good to say about it. But I have to concede it's very good at evoking a specific thing. And I used to be indifferent to that. Another thing that I'm much more sensitive, though, now about is how long the game is. I used to be willing, if I enjoyed the game, I generally would be willing to play a game for, you know, three hours as much as I would for 20 minutes. But now... I think in part just because of being familiar with much more, many more games and being exposed to games that are really, really, really quick and tight and streamlined and get all that good stuff, like Claustrophobia, like Titans Tactics, games like that, I am less tolerant of games that overstay their welcome. Even to the point where games that I otherwise really, really enjoy, like Anachrony, I have to sit and say, it's a two-hour worker placement game. Can I really justify playing a two-hour worker placement game? I guess the answer is no. Off to the trade pile it goes. And I was never that vicious 10 years ago. But now it's really the case that if a game is going to last a certain length, it'd best be really good in its class. Otherwise, I'm going to move on to something else. So my last point is more about just my collection overall. I'm sure I've made this point before. I used to buy games for a particular group before or particular players. Like, oh, this person would really like this game or this is going to work really well with this group now i've become completely selfish which is which is good because my collection really needs to be smaller so now unless it's the game that i'm going to enjoy then i don't get it i don't i don't look at it anymore as you know this group or that group or this person it's just am i going to enjoy this game then i will get it as someone who has always been selfish i <laughs> that, that is definitely not an area of personal growth that i've experienced with respect to my uh, my collection i I have to say, though, that as my... And I don't know if this is a cult of the new problem. I think it's just generally an issue. My hunger for variety actually has increased, as my collection has. I think it's part because I keep finding weird stuff that does very particular things very well. I guess it's a corollary to what I said about, well, you know, if it executes a particular theme very well, if it has this one mechanism that I haven't seen anywhere else, or if it does something so much better than, than, than everything else I have. And I really am always on the lookout for... Another thing that satisfies that, which which really helps helps me feel better about playing all this dreck that we often do, so that we can just complain about it on the podcast. Because even though I the number of games that I keep wanting to to come back to, and I generally find the time to come back to designs that I want to come back to, so I think I'm doing pretty well in that score. I still want to keep trying new and more uh, new and other things because as the hobby evolves. It really is great to see what else people come up with, whether it's terms of thematic execution or, or, or uh, evolution of mechanisms. So back in the early days of the hobby, I used to think that I could find the definitive game of a certain type and then eventually I would be happy and I would just stay static with, 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 with those games. You know, the definitive auction game, the definitive dungeon crawler, the definitive whatever. I don't have that fallacy anymore. I, I know that there is no such definitive thing. I can have my favorite of a given thing, but even if it's my favorite kind of game of that type, I'm still going to want to play other instances of it. Just because I'm able to appreciate games for their uniqueness, not just because of their sheer quality. So thank you for joining us for this evolution of personal growth, or lack thereof. This has been So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like this podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>